You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and here to talk with me about the assembled Avengers is John Mills. Yes, indeed, I am here, but uh, my my regulator is a little on the fritz, so I've had to prop. I'm, I'm actually sitting on a large stack of uh, of phone books uh, until I can get back to normal size. Wait, what year are you in? Because you still have phone books? Uh, it's because I just I I am actually um, a hoarder. Actually, oh, since okay. I can shrink things down to a tiny size, I never throw yeah, anything out. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. I understand. I Although, mean, you wait never a minute. Know Hold on. Full, full stop. If pim particles can shrink everything, isn't it incumbent upon them to shrink landfills so that they have less of a an environmental impact? Yes. Right. That is a I great mean, question, John. And, and I mean, conversely, in this movie where the cars shrink, do, but but we know everything gets denser, more, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. atomically sounded. You know mm-hmm. what? I'm sorry. I'm starting up too quickly. These are just <laughs> the sort of questions that, I, that, that, that go in my head. I feel but like... Would the, would the car have fewer emissions at that size, or would oh, they be really true. dense emissions? Mm. Man, see, these are all really good questions. This is, I mean... I don't know. I feel like they just didn't really think all this stuff through enough. And uh, obviously, did, we need a technical manual for pim particles. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, you don't need a technical manual to listen to uh, assembling Avengers here in the Six Hundred Two Club feed. We want to thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, of course, make sure you check us out wherever you get your podcasts, um, as you are now, and just want to make sure you're subscribed, and you'll get the show as soon as it drops. Uh, if you're on a place like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us those star ratings or reviews. Those really help people continue to find the show anew. We'd also love it if you would interact with us over on Twitter and follow us at the 602 Club and on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We've got the whole listeners discussion group there on Facebook called the Babel Conference. You can join listeners from all over the world for the entire network, which is really fun as well. And there's, of course, our main Facebook page at facebook.com slash trackfm and the website too at track.fm where you can see all of the things that we are doing, which is really, really fantastic. So, John, um, when was the first time that you saw Ant-Man and the Wasp? For this show, as a matter of fact, Matt. Before that, I had only seen The Stinger because wow. uh, because... Uh, as Endgame was coming up, I don't know who, mm-hmm. but somebody said, I said, do I have to see Ant-Man and Wasp? And I was told, mo- most likely by uh, my longtime friend, uh, Craigula, I-, I was probably told, you have to watch The Stinger, and you'll be fine. And I watched The Stinger, and then, yes, that's all I needed going into Endgame to know what had happened. And uh, so, no, this was my first time uh, revisiting these characters, which we established earlier we're kind of in love with that we loved these mm-hmm. characters they were mm-hmm. great characters and yeah. uh and terrific chemistry so but i'm presuming you saw this in you saw this in a the theater that summer right after your I did. after your I did. fifth showing of solo a star wars story correct yes yes um i it was it, you know i it was really interesting cuz obviously these come out not too far away from each other and yes i actually did i think see solo a star wars story maybe four or five times in the theater and mm-hmm. I did go see Ant-Man and the Wasp as well. And, you know, it it was a, a good experience as, you know, all the Marvel movies really are in, in the end. They're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, to see in the theater and especially, you know, generally when I do see them, um, they do tend to be opening night type of thing. And, you know, it's, it's just enjoyable because I enjoy seeing things with the fans, um you know of something it's it's just much more fun that way to me um and to kind of be in a room of of people who actually want to see what it is you're watching to me that just makes it more fun and 
people were definitely ready for this. And um, I, I, I don't recall the actual, like, my viewing experience or anything of it, but, like, anything stands out, like, nobody did anything weird or anything. But, yeah, I had a good time watching it, and I, I wanted to ask you, before we kind of dive into some other things, like, was it just some life stuff that got in the way of you seeing this movie? Was there, were you at the point of Marvel fatigue, maybe, where you just, I don't really care enough to go see it? You know, I, I want, like, there's a part of me that wants to say, yeah, I was starting to get tired of Marvel, but no, I think it was just like, this came out in 2018, mm-hmm. and I can't remember anything specific about that summer, because I too saw Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, at least five times in the theater, and um, I don't recall a, a specific reasoning why, as, you know, actually, you know, life gets in the way, life gets busy, Ant-Man and the Wasp, if I recall correctly, was out of the theater by the time by the time it got around that I could clear my schedule sort of thing. It was like it was down to two showings a day. And I was like, ah, I'll just wait, you know, just sort of miss the window. Same yeah. thing sort of happened yeah. with Deadpool, too, where I because I, that came out that summer as well. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I just didn't get around to it in the first couple of weeks. And I was like, yeah, I'll get, I'll get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, in many ways, too, at that time period, like this is kind of something that's different now post the pandemic, which is really that, you know, things stay in the theater longer now because there are not as many films that are coming out all at one time. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually helped the longevity of films in the theater and, and people getting a chance to like, if you don't make it out the first weekend, you know, there are many more weekends to come because you don't have to rush out right away. So I think, you know, that's something that you kind of put your finger on there that was actually kind of an issue when it comes to these blockbuster films. It's like if you aren't seeing it the first couple of weeks, like then there's another blockbuster that comes out and it like the showtimes for the other movie are can be you know, so lean that you might even get a chance to. And of course, like I know for you, you don't live around the corner from your movie theater. Um, I do not. And and so like, I mean, for me, legitimately, it's probably a five minute drive. I know for you, it's quite a bit more. Uh, It is. It is more. uh, That's for sure. And I, I'd also like to thank the city fathers in my area for uh, killing the plans to put a movie theater that would have been 10 minutes from my front door. And uh, mm-hmm. killing those plans. Um, yeah, that's really and with nice that, of them. Killing my dreams. So thanks a lot, guys. Um, but, uh, you know, Ant-Man uh, and the Wasp, Florida, though. Where dreams yeah. go to die. Hey, no, just it's teasing. just it's city I'm planners teasing. out here, I'm man. totally teasing. It's, no, I know so, exactly what you mean. So. Yeah, but, but um, like, I recall at the time, and please correct me if I'm not remembering correctly, right, that this was not as warmly received uh, even by fans at the time. This wasn't hmm. something that became quite the sensation that Marvel movies were used to being. Am I mm-hmm. misremembering that? Am I overlaying something there that I don't... Because usually the Marvel movies were making like one, two, fifty billion dollars, but this one mm-hmm. I don't recall as generating that same sort of buzz. Am I right about that? I think... You know, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I know this movie has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, and its audience score is 81%. So, you know, usually the audience score is actually higher. And so it does seem like that this was a movie that didn't hit with the audiences the same way a lot of the other Marvel movies had. And I don't, I'll ask you this. Do you think that maybe what people were thinking at that time was the fact, well, we just had infinity war and now this like, well, I mean like even a prequel is a difficult enough thing to try to deal with, mm -hmm. but this is a sidequel. Yes. And so that's, that's like a weird sort of thing. So I I could understand absolutely people saying, ah, you know, I mean, I didn't really, you know, like, uh, where does this fit? Do I right, really right. have to see it? Yeah. No, it's not necessary to see for Endgame sort of thing. And yeah, actually looking up, it's not like the movie did badly, but mm-hmm. its its budget was $162 million estimated. 
Um, and then its gross in you in North America was uh, two sixteen and change, mm. which it makes money. But and then worldwide was six hundred twenty two million. Now, keeping in mind that I always make this comment, but we're talking about millions of dollars. It's a lot of money to be talking about and saying, right. well, it didn't make a right. billion, but that's an underperformer for Marvel at this point because. Ragnarok's a billion, Black Panther's a billion, uh, mm-hmm. Infinity War was like a billion and a half, two billion, yep. something like that. Um, I mean, uh, Civil War was a billion. So this really, on a comparative scale, yeah, does not perform the same way that uh, that those other ones did. Yeah, and I think you do have a point in the sense that this movie is like, I love what you called it, like a side cool, because, you know, this does take place before Infinity War. And then, of course, the stinger ends with the snap, you know, and it also I think the thing about it that feels kind of strange is that this adventure is taking place during what's happening with Infinity War. And it when I kind of think about it, it doesn't really make sense. And 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 maybe. Maybe that stinger is like at the moment, like you know, uh, this is this movie isn't really happening during Infinity War, but it just still is very strange that they're working on this whole other project, you know, while Infinity War is happening and Scott and is not involved. Well, yeah, there's two things with that, right? Is I very much got the impression it's taking place at least part of it during Infinity War because it's over the span of a of a couple of days. And Infinity War, they make reference to the fact that he's under house arrest at the time. They very specifically make reference to right. that. And he's right. not under house arrest at the end of this movie. Right. So it has to be happening relatively yeah, concurrently. That's a great point. Yep. But what is odd about that is the fact that there's no news coverage of it. Yes. That the world is just going on and giant aliens attacking New York Mm -hmm. can't possibly be something that the news is just exactly thinking, eh, the people do an internet search, Yep, you know, yep. Or I, I mean, like the thing is you'd have to go Oliver Stone, crazy conspiracy theory where it's like, oh, well, we don't want to cause a panic. So suppress anything that has news having to do with such and such sort of thing. Like you, you have to do a lot of mental legwork mm-hmm. to balance yep. that one out. Yep. And maybe that's what people responded to is that it does feel out of place. I, I It almost feels as this movie. It just needed to be completely before Infinity War. So you didn't deal with any of And I think it would have been better if that had been the case. Um, I think it would have made more sense to people and it would have been more well-received if this had basically just come out after Black Panther. So, Well, uh, you know what? This actually goes in. Let's just kick off the discussion of the movie itself because there are a couple of structural things that I immediately glom onto, being me. But the stinger is what plugs it in so that you know why Ant-Man is not available during uh, – why he, why he doesn't get snapped and then why he's able to come back and all of those sorts of things. But wouldn't it have been so much better to take that stinger material and work it into the movie where Scott gets stranded in the quantum realm saving or helping to bring both Hank and – get hank and janet out of there and the movie ends with them saying well we're gonna have to figure out how to get them back and then we see them snap out and so it still leans heavily on the need for um you know plugging into the larger narrative we also don't get a warm and fuzzy uh the thing Mm -hmm. i was very much afraid of through the entire thing was that i was going to get something tragic where he left his daughter hanging mm-hmm. and was not able to to close that loop. That would have made me very sad. Yeah. Yeah. But it also would have been very poignant of, I, I mean, yeah, it's a trope, but the dad has to mm-hmm. think of something bigger and say, tell her I love her sort of thing. 
Like it, that, that tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, you know, you think about the end of the movie, like they're, they're watching a m- movie and mm-hmm. yeah, it just doesn't play well with infinity war. And, and so in some ways, you know, I, I do think for me, I kind of divorce myself from where this movie is supposed to be taking place and I'm just trying to enjoy it and and think about it on the terms of it being the next story for Ant-Man. Sure. So because it is what like when I think about it in the greater whole of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it doesn't work as well. But if I divorce it from that, I find a lot less problems with this movie. Well, that but that's the thing is I think that a lot yep. of the stuff that is worked in there, you know, feels a lot like studio notes of this is what you have to have in the movie. Because for instance, all of the stuff with, um, you know, with, with Scott and his old crew, you know, uh, uh, Dave and Kurt. And of course, you know, everybody's favorite, uh, Luis, you know, like having them back, having that flow. This very much feels like a movie that very well could have been written or, roughed out and then they got notes you have to include these things too mm-hmm. and they said okay well we'll we'll graph them on there and it was great seeing john krasinski as the fbi agent um watching oh i'm sorry that was randall park that's right sorry guys if you've watched the office that's a big joke because randall park had an episode of the yes. office where he showed yep. up pretending to be yes. uh, that character. Sorry, just just making the cheap joke there. But Randall Park, his energy and his interaction actually with uh, with, with Paul Rudd was fantastic. I love the two of them playing against each yes. other. Yeah, that that's the type of energy that I loved in the first Ant Man. Mm-hmm. Louis yeah. and and all of the side characters, even Bobby Cannavale as, as Paxton and Judy Greer in there as his ex-wife uh, uh Maggie and you know I mean the little girl Cassie good grief she's adorable cute as a button mm-hmm. and just all of that energy was like what I come to an Ant-Man movie for granted there's yep. only been one before yeah. but that's the type of energy that's what I'm looking for and the rest of the stuff I mean the the stuff with um Lawrence Fishburne and uh uh Hannah John Kamen just that felt like a studio note too, where it's like, well, you got to have these characters in there. And it's like, yeah, they just didn't, there winds up being this antagonist bloat. The type of thing I've been hammering on since all the way back to uh, Batman returns where it's mm-hmm. like, keep your antagonists tied together better so that you don't have Walton Goggins with one objective and Lawrence Fishburne right. with another objective. Right. Right. Have them all work toward one objective. And it just, it flows a lot better. Yeah, I agree with you there because I think as much as I, and I love Walton Goggins, he's so good in just about anything he's in. Hallelujah, yes. Especially like Fat Man. Oh, he's so good, Fat Man. He um, is, and he's he's also great in Righteous Gemstones. Yes. Absolutely yeah, great in yeah, that show. I've heard that. So I think you're absolutely right. Honestly, he takes away from more of the story that we should have gotten, which is you know, Bill Foster and mm-hmm. Ava, who's ghost. And because there's a story here about Hank Pym that mm-hmm. doesn't really get completely unraveled the way it needs to. Like it, it we really need to go to the quantum realm on, on who this character is because he does have a problem with playing with people. Well, um, and he, he, is kind of an unforgiving character, and that never gets resolved in this movie very well. I mean, he comes in to help Bill and Ava in the end, and Janet does too, to save her, but there's no emotional resolution with Hank Pym's character in the sense of, like, we never kind of dig up what his demons are, and we never probably will. And so it's just kind of frustrating, I think, for the story that we gloss over some really important aspects to what's actually driving this story, which is his kind of, and and forgive me for saying this, but dickishness. Mm-hmm. 
I I completely agree. There was a terrific opportunity, even if they focused on that, to show how Hope had coped with it and rolled with it because she had her own shortcomings and it was a defensiveness mm-hmm. of her father mm-hmm. and a clinging on to him because of the loss of the mother. Right. And we could have had a beautiful moment where she realizes, you know, you really haven't been that great and, yeah, and have of a dad or a person. <laughs> right. And have that moment and give Hank the opportunity to now he does arguably find some sort of uh, uh, redemption in the fact that he's willing to give up everything to mm-hmm. go right, and, and, right. and find his, his wife, which is a great and noble quest. And, but I think you're absolutely right that it would have been better to focus on ghost and foster and leave the Sonny Birch part out of it. Do you think I mean, does Sonny I, Bunch sue for this movie? For uh, you know, character assassination, <laughs> he should. <laughs> Although, for all we know, it's very it's very accurate. No, but like you're saying, Birch should go. And my initial thought was that Ghost was the note that they forced in. But even if Ghost was the note that they forced in, it at least had something to do with what they were trying to achieve. So you're right, Birch is is the extra that doesn't need to happen. And if anything, it feels like they 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 pulled the punch because they didn't want mm-hmm. Foster to be too ruthless. Because right. him giving Luis the the truth serum and forcing things out of people, it's a cleaner movie. It's a it's a a, a leaner story, more focused, but it makes him a lot less sympathetic. Whereas he just seems like a guy in over his head, uh, the way that the movie works now. Well, and one of the things that I think is is interesting is that, and 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 I don't think the movie completely gets there thematically, but there is this really interesting thing that you know Hank was a better version of himself when Janet was there, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the people that we see, he can't find a way to deal with people. So Ava's father, he, you know, excommunicates. He does the same thing with Foster. And what we kind of see here is that these scientists actually need each other to make these discoveries together because they help complete one another, right? They they help counterbalance each other's deficits. And Janet does that for Hank. When he's not there, he can't see that he also needs other people right Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so there is this i do really because uh that's that's something that hope is also struggling with you also see um you also see scott struggling with that idea because you know they have the whole argument you know you didn't ask me to go with you to germany and it's this idea is that we're better in partnership together and Mm -hmm. It's a really great theme. I just think that by having the Sonny Birch character in there that you really extract the places where you would have been able to add layers to that that are needed for it to come to full fruition as a thematic element. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's there. It's just by the end, you don't feel like you've woven the tapestry that you this movie's trying to weave. It just feels like three-fourths of the picture yeah i i i I can't disagree with that i i mean and that's the thing is i'm sure you've picked up on my note of uh disappointment Mm -hmm. uh, with it so far and all of it just stems back to to structural things that i think it was surprising to me that were there Mm -hmm. and it makes me wonder maybe edgar wright's scripting that he left there for them, that structure is what made the first one work so damn well. And mm-hmm. without that structure laid out, it takes nothing away from these people who worked on this film. It takes nothing away from them as talents or as filmmakers or anything like that. 
to simply say maybe they needed another person in the room who who would keep them on course or maybe they just got too many notes and they were just not in a position to push back you know i i mean we all have jobs where you know we wish we could push back on something but right. nope 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 got to get it yeah. got to get it done today and it's got to have all these things but um you know well, I, i'm not trying to focus on the negative yeah. too much well one I thing i want to add to that is i i think i think you do kind of have a really good point in the sense that i it does feel like this movie whether it's notes or whether it's just kind of sequel problems which is there's too many things going on in a lot of sequels when you should kind mm-hmm. of like strip it down to its its bare minimum and i i think that's just kind of what ends up happening with this movie because again like i don't dislike this movie or anything i just see places where there was a lot of potential that mm-hmm. doesn't get exercised in a way that makes you feel more validated by watching the movie um, at the end. Um, and that's where I think that's that the, there is like this little piece that's missing, you know? And so I, I, I might put that down to, you know, lots of sequels. They try to put too much in, and you brought up Batman Returns. I think it's a perfect place where there's just there's too much going on and it's just there's there's not enough focus. And you know uh that the common theme or the 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 common thread there is uh that Michelle Pfeiffer's in both of them. So go figure. And uh So we're blaming uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> I could no, I could never blame Michelle Pfeiffer for anything. I want to go it's on true. record as it's saying true. That I mean, why would you? She could shoot me in the kneecap and I'd be like, not really her fault. Who can blame her? You know? Yeah. I mean, um, it, it's just a, it's a mere flesh wound. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. My, my knee got in the way of the bullet. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I mean, how I dare I? <laughs> I, w- I should have moved. I should have moved. Um, Absolutely. But, but um, I, to, to move away from like the negative stuff, when this does work, it reminds me of why I love Peyton Reed as a director so darn much. Is because when we do get those sequences, like the car chase sequence, mm-hmm. when we get, um, you know, Ant-Man using a tow truck like a kickboard to get down the street yeah. in the car chase, <laughs> when we have um, Ant-Man coming up at a giant size on the ferry boat, you know, it's okay, folks. It's just, you know, and, and he's, <laughs> he's literally doing mm-hmm. th- this amazingly comic thing. When we get those quiet moments, I mean, even the way the film opens. Um, not with the flashback when we when we pick up with Scott and his daughter, mm-hmm. Cassie. Yeah, that's such a lovely moment. Like it's mm-hmm. such a lovely original, creative way, and it's shot so well. And and Luis gets to come in immediately to everything, and we we're brought up like when Peyton Reed gets it working, it works perfectly. It works beautifully. And mm-hmm. even though I think that the story elements with Ghost, they needed more focus. They needed to get rid of uh, uh, of Birch and focus more on her. I mean, that's a compliment, if anything, if you think about it. Yeah, but the way I they did so. the way they did the fight scenes, okay, you can't sleep on how tricky that photography oh, yeah. and those effects have to be. Yeah, and that is a masterful director who can make those scenes work. Mm-hmm. And I sit there. In my jaded cynicism of lifetime of movie watching, especially spectacle movie watching, going, yes. wow, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool what they yep. did there. I think I think you're 100% right that everything that works in this movie is because Peyton Reed is really, really freaking talented. Oh, um, yeah. And and I've uh, obviously, too, having seen his work with The Mandalorian, I think he he really gets stuff. Like, he has an innate understanding of... of what it is as an audience member that we want to see. And I think he's able to ameliorate a lot of movie sins here because he's misdirecting you, right? Like what mm-hmm. Scott talks about with the magic, he's able to get you to pay attention to things that don't have you thinking too deeply or diving off the deep end of like, Oh, why is that happening? Or, you know, like, 
because you are invested in what's going on. And I think he finds investment, um, like you said, immediately you got the father-daughter relationship. You've got Scott and Luis. You've got this uh, fight going on between uh, Hope and Scott, uh, as well as with uh, you know, Scott and Hank, um, this bad blood because of what happened there. I mean, you've got all of these things going on. And I think as much as there's some things that don't work as well, what really works in this movie is we want to be with these characters that we fell in love with, with the original Ant-Man. And he just allows us to like spend time with them. And that's just kind of what I want. And what I also really appreciate, what I really enjoy is Evangeline Lilly has so many moments to shine in this movie. They very deftly shift the focus from Hank as Scott's um, quasi antagonist Mm -hmm. to Hope and Scott. They too many times when you expand to have a team-based movie, two people, mm-hmm. you know, two protagonists sort of thing. It feels forced. It feels clunky. It feels tacked on. But not just because of uh, the, the direction or the scripting in those scenes, but Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd really make things work supremely well. And yeah, especially Evangeline Lilly, this, is, this really is something where... It's a reminder of just that charm and charisma that she brings that makes her such a joy to watch when she's in when she's enjoying her work, when she is in the role and in the moment, which I think she is in both Ant-Man movies. She's an absolute joy to watch. And Mm -hmm. um, I think additionally, they. And this is a tricky thing, what I'm about to say. But a lot of times when fight choreography is done, it makes these odd compensations for actresses that it doesn't need to make. And that's going to sound weird, but let me draw directly to Black Widow. With Black Widow, when you see her in a fight scene, there's a whole ton of sped up film super Mm -hmm. fast cuts, avoiding showing the face, all of those sorts of things. Now, obviously, when she's wearing the helmet, Evangeline Lilly's face is not there on screen. But the film never feels like it's cheating with her character. It always feels like Hope is genuinely in those fights, genuinely doing those things. And I know that part of it's movie trickery, but I also know that you have to sell it, just like you were talking about with the magic you know, the magic that is is behind Scott's whole thing with misdirection. And I, that's another reason I have to give Reed and his editing team a lot of credit. Because every single time I ever watch yep. Black Widow in a fight, I instantly disconnect because I say, that's not Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. here, even though it was very likely a stunt double, I'm sitting there saying that's that's hope. That's Evangeline Lilly right. in those fights. I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, first, you know, just with the the fight choreography with her, it does always feel legitimate. And it does always feel like she is ap- absolutely there, uh, regardless of whether or not she actually is. Um, and I think part of that is the physicality that she just has in general. Um, you know, I, the swagger to which she walks into that restaurant uh, is, you mm-hmm. know, palpable and just the same type of swagger that, you know, a guy would have walking in. Like She just walks in like she owns the place and like nobody's going to touch her. You know, she just has that air about her. And then I think it does translate so well because she is blessed to, to have the the mask that she gets to wear in the fight scenes. Um, that help but at the same time it just it all really works well and and the other part of that i think is is that hope and then in this movie too you know obviously it's called ant-man and the wasp 
you know, she is just as important of a character as Scott is. And this movie is just as much about her as it is Scott. And I think that's something that's really special as well. You know, I, I think the one movie where Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow really got to shine that we talked about was Winter Soldier. And mainly it's because it really treated her like an important character. Like that movie doesn't mm-hmm. work without her in it. You know, that's the this movie here. This movie doesn't work without Evangeline Lilly's hope. And it's very, very well done. You know, she's very well written. She's not written as is so hard you can't, you know, connect with her emotionally. Um, but she's also not written too soft. You know, like they just the writing here is really good for her character. And then I think the best thing is is just I've been a fan of Evangeline for a long time. And ever since Lost. Yeah. And everything that she is so good at, which is that emotional turmoil of a character, she brings to this role in, in a really perfect way. So I think mm-hmm. that all works really well. And, you know, we're all very lucky that she got cast in this role and and in all honesty it's you know as we're in phase four now i'm like i would love one more ant-man movie because i think we deserve it isn't there ant-man and the wasp quantumania isn't that the next movie you're right there is one more coming you're right i and that's what i'll go see that's what i'll go see and and also what i think really helps is that they did the legwork of establishing hope as a uh, you know a, a a very capable and strong character in the first one, so if I come in cold and I haven't seen the first one, I still like this character. This character still works. They still convey a lot about her, enough about her, so that when it gets to certain scenes, I buy it and I and I work with it. But additionally, if I've seen Ant Man. They've done the legwork to establish exactly what hope is capable of. Yeah. So there's no sense of um, retrofitting the character to do something to that I have to make an agreement to buy into. I already know right. hope can do right. all of these things I'm about to watch. They did all of that legwork in the first one, and she's a very integral part of the first one. And that's why I think the character works so well when we get here to the second one. I wanted to ask you, obviously, you know, because the action scenes are so important and especially with, you know, changing the uh, the the sizes and all that, you know, obviously that's a huge part of the first movie. And of course, you know, the second movie uh, now is it's just really important to it. So how do you feel like that this movie does? Does it top the first movie or does it not quite live up? What do you think? I think that in some ways it tops it. Again, the aforementioned car chase, I think, is just absolutely wonderful. And and I also love the fact that Luis gets that moment where he gets to open up the Hot Wheels box and pick his car. (laughs) He gets to, like, I I just thought so much of that stuff worked so well. Uh, One scene in terms of the, the resizing stuff felt very unnecessary, and that was breaking into the school. It was, it's a cute enough concept, but that's really one of those concepts where you pitch it and you say, eh, let's save it for the third one. Maybe we can find some way to do that. Yeah. Um, So there's a little bit of bloat there. I thought that the quantum realm stuff was really interesting. It was really, really interesting, really curious, really uh, slick, but I hate to say this, but. I kind of disconnected that it was Hank that went in there. I didn't care as much about Hank mm-hmm. putting himself at risk as I would have right. cared about Hope or Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's I unfortunate. Agree. I I think that's such a good point, you know, um, because, you know, I think the thing about the movie is, is that it, it doesn't connect you enough to him and his desire to have his wife back because it, you've made him kind of an unlikable character in the movie, um, or at least not as sympathetic as you would want at this moment. 
And I think that's really the frustration that I have when we go there, you know, um, and, and I think you're 100% right in the sense that the one scene of size changing uh, is the school and it does feel really off in the sense of the way the effects composite together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the funny moment where he's like really big in the closet. And <laughs> um, oh, yeah. That that worked better. But then when he's just kind of like running around, it does look very strange. Um, you, you know what's you know what's silly, and I'm about to draw a very odd comparison, but work with me here. Okay, in this we have the malfunctioning regulator that doesn't always reliably mm-hmm. resize him, and it's a very convenient plot device. Yes. And it reminds me of another plot device that's extremely convenient, not supported by the first movie in the series. But because of the way it's handled and mm-hmm. why it needs to be that way, the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive motivator malfunctioning in The Empire Strikes Back. The, the Falcon never has a malfunction on that scale in Star Wars or Return of the Jedi, or even in those fan films that came out later. And it's really yeah. interesting because this is the exact same sort of plot device. But... It just doesn't work as well here. It it provides some moments for comedy, but it's an example, I think, of the bloat. Mm-hmm. That's an idea that's good to shelve for, say, the third one where they're trying to perfect another suit, and that mm-hmm. itself leads to the hijinks. Yeah. Or the villain attacks, and that's why he can't get the other suit is because of X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. It just feels like an idea you can hold off until next time. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. Um I think one of the things that is interesting about this movie is the fact that we've been talking about all these things that are kind of like, uh, you know, uh am I crazy or or is it weird that I, I even with all of that stuff, I just really have a good time watching this movie? No, that's not wrong at all. It's okay to have a, like, that's the thing is it's okay just to have a good time sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the problems is Marvel has created this, uh, th- this, this milieu, if you will. Uh, that's not the right way to use the word, but, you know, this vibe, this zeitgeist, this whatever word you want to use, go find a thesaurus or something. But, like, every movie has to have this big important meaning to it especially in the wake of infinity war and it's like this movie harkens back to when things could be a little bit more relaxed so in a sense it almost feels like this is trapped Mm -hmm. between what guardians of the galaxy is allowed to do and what this movie can't do because it is following on the heels of the most major film event of a decade that has had audiences captivated. Yeah. Placement is everything. And so I sit here in the rewatch. I would actually, in all honesty, probably watch this before infinity war. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Instead of after. So in that question, because I was thinking about this, because it sounded like, as we've been talking, I feel like we might be kind of in the same place with the movie, which is interesting because obviously I'd seen it before, you hadn't seen it, but do you think that one of the things that maybe makes this movie work more than it should for us is its ability to be its own thing? And fight to tell its own story. Like even though it doesn't do it the way we would totally want it to. Like it's still legitimately trying to tell stories about its characters. And have the least amount of connection it can with the rest of the MCU. Because that's not its job. And it just wants to tell stories about Hope. And Scott. And his family. And her family. And you know. That's to me it's like. 
the fight of this movie is to be able to allow them to do that in the same way the first Ant-Man did. And it just isn't quite as successful because they're having to play nice with the rest of the MCU. Um, and maybe that's one of the things that kind of hurts it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think it's the the whole sense of having to play nice with the rest of the MCU really does just come on the fact that it's on the heels of Infinity War. I Again, I think this just plays better before Infinity War. Mm-hmm. And yeah. But I think that it is structural of it's just it's got so much bloat um, and so much stuff where I'm like, you know, you could cut this. And I'm also very much a fan if you can at all manage it, if you're going to have a comedy to make it an hour and 40 or less. Unless there is just no way to make it otherwise. And uh, if, you know, I mean, that, that could very well be the case. Right. But like. I just, I think there's a little bit too much here. That's it. What did you think about, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but what did you end up thinking, especially coming off Infinity War, the effects of this film? More consistent, honestly. I I hope I'm not Mm -hmm. way off there, but I watched it on the same television Mm -hmm. and the compositing, except for that, that school scene was all pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall anything jumping out at me as, ah, eh, that's not really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's odd. Maybe it's just the volume of shots is less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe, maybe I'm more forgiving because I don't know what it would look like for a teeny tiny car to suddenly get big. <laughs> um, or to be fighting and like have a knife thrown at you in your size of an ant. Right. Maybe I'm more forgiving for that. Maybe um, maybe it's just uh, uh, arranged better. Uh, maybe, I mean, the thing is in the car chase, there's one moment where a truck gets flipped over because the, you know, they, they resize their car and it flips the, the truck off of them. And that didn't composite very well, but that's like a shot mm-hmm. in that whole sequence. And there are a couple of, there are a couple of shots in that sequence that aren't great, but mm-hmm. on the whole, it's fine. But they they also get a lot of cheat space, okay? You have to recognize this, is that they get a lot of cheat space because they go to the quantum realm. I have absolutely no frame of reference <laughs> right. for what the hell that would look like. It's true. So it's yeah. like, you know, they got stuff going on in the background. They got tardigrades. And I'm like, sure, that's what it would look like. Okay. You know, like, whatever. That's fine. Yeah, I think this movie is definitely more consistent than what we saw with infinity war and you know i think to me and and we've already called it out the one scene that does stand out is the one with the school and the rest of it does feel good when it comes to what we're seeing effects wise and i'm not really pulled out of anything by the movie and you know watching this again i was i was watching more carefully to see if that was going to be the case and and other than the school, there wasn't anything that jumped out at me. Whereas, you know, it, with Infinity War, I, I was pulled out quite frequently by compositing that I, I felt like wasn't living up to what it should be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that speaks highly to what they're trying to do here. And I do think maybe you do have a part of that, which is what you're talking about. Like, I have no idea what, uh, you know, it looks like to to fight and get small and get big and, you know, throw salt shakers at people and, you know, giant Pez dispensers and things like that. And maybe (laughs) it's easier when you're dealing with that type of reality, just making something bigger or smaller than it is, you know, these other things they're trying to do. But I just, it was really good. Really enjoyed the effects in this film. And then uh, Christoph Beck does the music here. And how did you feel that this work? Because I know we enjoyed his the the work for the first movie. We felt like it was it was you know captured the vibe well. Um, a little bit more electronic. Uh, this movie. What did you think? I liked it. I thought it worked. You know, I I mean, it's not uh, Gorenson's work on Tenet, 
but it's good. Right. And it fits yeah. and, it, and it captures the vibe. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the I think that the score is exactly what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't strive to be anything more than that. And that's fine. Yeah, it works. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, I'm right there. And that's that way um, with the music. I think it's fun. It uses the thematic element really well from the first movie. And then it kind of like amps it up in different ways, you know, like trying with different orchestrations of that theme and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I I thought it was consistent with the first movie and, you know, had me enjoying what it was doing. You know, not the best of the MCU, but also an enjoyable listen, which, you know, the fact that I could could listen to it outside the movie and still enjoy it is always a plus with a soundtrack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I guess, uh, you know, for me, I'm pretty much on the edge of my seat right now because I know this is the first time you've seen this movie. And I am very interested because, you know, we've had a lot of back and forth with things that worked and things that didn't work. So I, I, where do you land with the ratings for Ant-Man and the Wasp? This is a three star movie that gets a three and a half from me because of two things. The action sequences are handled extremely well. And, uh, Luis's reaction to the truth serum and the stories and the fact that they have the characters say he's like a jukebox. You just have to put the dime in and just go with it. You just, you got to let it play. Uh, or even David Desmalchian's uh, reaction when Ghost shows up after he's the one that told the, the the fairy tale about the the ghost woman that would show up that that they threatened the kids for, and he just started saying the name over and over because he was terrified. Moments like that elevate it. So it's a three star movie that gets a three and a half because there are specific entertainment pieces, uh, and I, I would watch it again. What about you? Where did you end up with it? Is it the same as it was? Did it grow? Did it shrink? Did it? Uh, did the regulator misfire? And you're all over the board. <laughs> so this is it's it's a really interesting thing because you know watching it again, I was struggling with a lot of the the things that we talked about, but at the same time. I was finding myself enjoying the ride enjoying watching the movie again and enjoying the characters again because they're so well played by all the actors here. And so I give this a three and a half out out of five. I mean, um, it, it, it was at the place where I was, I was asking myself, do I give this a four because of, the fact that I would rewatch this over other things in the MCU. And, you know, maybe if we had, you know, quarter stars, it might be at 3.75. Listen, at but some point, yeah, you know, at some point in the future, somebody's going to come up with a six star scale and <laughs> all of my letterbox stuff. I got to know what the algorithm's going to do with that because I'm in a state of crisis yes. about it. So, but I mean, in the end, yeah, I, I I think this is a really solid film and it's just like the first Ant-Man, I just enjoy watching it. I And I enjoy Scott and I enjoy Hope and I enjoy watching them find them their way back together, you know, and I think it just speaks to how important casting is for films because... Mm-hmm. Casting can ameliorate a lot of problems at a film if you're really enjoying who's playing the character. And, yes. uh, you know, I think when you have all of these really high quality people, even though I might not love the Bill Foster story, Lawrence Fishburne's great. You know, that scene where him and Scott are trying to one up how big they got, you know, is fun- really funny. That's a very cute scene. Very, very cute, and that, and and again, that's why I, I say it's a three star movie that that's a that gets a three and a half for me because it has those moments where when I think about it, I giggle again because yeah. they're just yeah. really, really clever. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, John, I'm very excited then to see where this movie ends up ranking because I'm wondering if it changes anything for you. Well, I mean, by all means, it needs to because it, uh, it you know, it, it's adding to the list. So we'll go through Captain America Winter Soldier. I mean, do I even have to say this number? Like, can we just can we just skip that <laughs> slot? Okay. It's the duh. Duh. Uh, Iron Man 3, which I know still annoys some people. I've been told it annoys some people. So uh, I gladly sit there annoying everybody because Iron Man 3 is uh, in spot number two. Uh, then the original Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the original Iron Man, Black Panther, despite its own effects woes, Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange, Captain America Civil War, Captain America the First Avenger, and then, in all honesty, right after that's going to slot in um, Ant-Man and the Wasp, followed nice. by the Incredible Hulk, Avengers Infinity War, Thor, Spider-Man Homecoming, Avengers, Howard the Duck, Thor the Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor Ragnarok, and Avengers Age of Ultron. So keep in mind, there are four movies that still rank below the much-reviled Howard the Duck in my rankings. Nice. What about you, Matt? Where does uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp end up? So I'm going to go with, of course, shockingly enough, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> 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 Matt Winter breaks Soldier, the internet. Iron Man, Iron Man 3, Civil War, First Avenger, uh, Black Panther, Guardians 2, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Avengers, Avengers Infinity War, Thor the Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor, Howard the Duck, Age of Ultron, and Thor Ragnarok. Wow. Yeah. How crazy. How crazy. I know. Which is interesting because Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, you know, when I was doing the ratings last time, it had f like kind of fallen down. And then it like, you know, no, I'm going to I'd actually probably watch this over, you know, Avengers or Avengers Age, uh, Infinity War. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, and definitely before Avengers Age of Ultron. So, um, well, John. Uh, this has been so much fun. We only have three more movies left in phase three. And so Wait, next three week, more in phase three. Yes. So we've got <sighs> Captain Marvel Endgame, and then far from home. And I've never seen far from home. So there you go. There you go. It's going to be Good exciting. Lord phase three. I, I mean, know. Seriously, man. It's like getting greedy here. Ridiculously long. So. Oof. Oh, goodness. Well, uh, before marathon. we get there, uh, before we dive into outer space again, uh, if people wanted to catch up with you, John, where can they find you? Oh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie out there uh, when I'm active on social media. Uh, most fun, probably on Letterboxd. And then, of course, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting two shows, House Lights, about the work of directors, which I co-host with uh, Darren Moser and Tristan Riddell. And... Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with you, Matthew Rushing. Which I hope everybody will check out because it's a delightful enjoyment of just Star Wars goodness every week when we're together. It's, it's I so agree. Fun. It is delightful. It truly is. Well, people can also uh, find me all over the social medias under the name MattRushing02. So whether that's Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those type of players is Twitter, you know. Just look for me there. Uh, you can also find me here on the network in the main 602 Club feed doing all those things 602 Club-ish. Of course, we're also doing Snyder Cuts together where we talked about everything Zack Snyder's directed. He's got something coming up here in the next few years, so we'll have more there. And I am doing Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, and The Artificial Tango. So... Literary Treks, about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. 
The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and the Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard, as Chris and I are walking through Season 2 together. So you'll have to look for all of those. And you'll find me on a finished show over on the Nerd Party Network, uh, aside from Aggressive Negotiations, where I did Outpost with Dre Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But... Thank you so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!